CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. Most industries in the world should be digitized. Why is it that as a consumer, we can order pretty much everything online, but as a business user who you know uses these online platforms on, on the consumer side of things, why can't they kind of have a similar experience you know, on the business side of things? So I, I think we'll see many, many different industries being digitized, whether it's, you know, in the food to supply chain, whether it's, you know, in the manufacturing supply chain, whether it's, you know, even in pure procurement of B2B fashion. That was Julia from Point9 Capital explaining why she believes there will be a number of billion-dollar B2B marketplaces in different verticals over the next few decades. I've been following her work on B2B marketplaces for the past two years, and she's perhaps the only investor who's vertically focused on them. I find her blog and reports very insightful and inspiring. Make sure to check them out. In this episode, we'll talk about B2B marketplaces, explore different business models, weird industries that are ripe for disruption, and the important metrics for B2B platforms. Let's go. Hello, Julia. How are you? Hi, I'm great. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. Um, You're in Berlin. Are you in your office? Yeah, I'm working in Berlin for the time being, and luckily our offices are still open. Cool, cool. I feel like things are getting worse. So, I mean, lockdown is approaching, right? Do you guys wear masks? Do you still eat out? How's life in Berlin? You know what? It's surprisingly pretty good. I used to live in London, and from what I've heard through friends, it's getting a lot worse over there, and they're essentially going into a second lockdown. So far, we've been relatively lucky here in that we can still go out to restaurants, go to the office. So pretty happy to be in this part of the world right now. True. My sister lives in London, and she's been telling me that things are getting worse day by day. Not sure how this winter is going to pass. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Well, fingers crossed things go as smoothly as possible. Well, um, let's jump in with your personal background. Uh, You became a venture capitalist back in 2016 when you joined GFC, and then you moved to Berlin to join Point9 Capital. What convinced you to become a venture capitalist in the first place, and why did you move out of London? Yeah, so with regards to your first question, what convinced me to go into venture capital. So I'd always been fascinated with the whole startup ecosystem, had actually tried rather unsuccessfully to start my own business when I was at university, had absolutely no clue what I was doing at the time. So that that wasn't my finest moment, but uh, learned a lot of things on how not to build a business. I then worked at a couple of startups, including one which was trying to compete with Apple, but selling luxury phones. So that was another interesting experience of mine. And then from from there, I went on to work at a fintech accelerator and really got exposure to how financing works, the world of startups. And I just had met lots of VCs and it felt like a really exciting career trajectory with the opportunity to meet people really at the top of their game, and I couldn't resist the opportunity to at least give it a shot. So uh, at that point, I joined GFC in London. So that was late 2016, um, did two years over there, really enjoyed my time. And then an opportunity opened up to join Point9 Capital. And I was actually, I was a big fan girl. So I had prior to joining GFC, had taught myself pretty much everything I know about VC from reading Point9's blogs. 
And when I saw that there was a, an opportunity to join, I just had to jump at it. And uh, a couple of years later, here I am and uh, very happy to, to be part of the team. It's been an exciting journey so far. Well, so the content worked. What, what fascinates me the most about being a venture capitalist is you frequently meet with entrepreneurs and most of them are smarter than you. At least they're smarter than me. That's what I feel like. And that really feeds you as you meet with these entrepreneurs. This episode is going to be about B2B marketplaces, but can you tell us more about Point9 Capital and what makes you guys unique? Yeah, so Point9 Capital is a European-based early-stage fund uh, with a very strong focus on B2B SaaS and B2B marketplaces. We've been going for about 12 years now and have invested in the likes of Delivery Hero, Revolut, Typeform, Algolia, and Loom, amongst others. And believe it or not, we've been investing remotely and globally since day one, so even pre-COVID. In total, we've done about 150 investments in over 28 countries, for instance. Uh, one of the things that makes us unique is the fact that we are very thesis-driven for a seed fund. And we have this specific focus on B2B SaaS or marketplaces, as I mentioned earlier. And in line with that, we've built up a really great community of founders, operators, and advisors within those two categories. And that's what we call the Point Nine family. And we put a lot of work into making sure that portfolio companies are not only getting value from us as a investment team, but really from that broader community and network of entrepreneurs that we've worked with before. Uh, in terms of you know, when we come in, we are very much focused on seed. We do about 10 to 12 investments per year and invest anywhere between 500K to about 2.5 million euros. Mm-hmm. I feel like Point9 is the most geographically diversified VC firm in Europe, both from a team perspective, you guys are all over the place, and also from a portfolio perspective. That really amazes me. Yeah, our team is also, yeah, as you mentioned, really diverse. So in terms of myself, my dad is British-Italian, my mom is French-Filipino, Then we have Ricardo on the team, who's Portuguese. Louis is French. Pavel is Polish. We have lots of different nationalities, Spanish, Australian on the team. So it's a really great environment to to work in and a lot of fun. Yeah, it's like a European dream. And ever since you joined Point9, you were interested in B2B marketplaces, and you even published the first landscape report two years ago. Since then, the ecosystem has taken off and we'll discuss all about it in the rest of the episode. But what made you bullish on B2B marketplaces in the first place? Good question. You know, I spent a lot of time at GFC looking at marketplaces. And at the time, it was a lot of consumer marketplaces. And to be honest, I got to the point where it just felt like I was seeing the same thing over and over again. So a lot of delivery marketplaces, for instance, a lot of Uber for X's and Almost as a consumer, we can order pretty much everything with a click of a button nowadays. And it just feels like almost everything has been done. Uh, And it occurred to me that that type of innovation still hasn't filtered through to B2B transactions. B2B transactions are still incredibly old school. I mean, I'm astounded by the fact that some of these transactions are still taking place on pen and paper, phone calls, faxes. In some cases, yes, they're still doing it on email, but it's not at all what we see in the consumer landscape. And it just felt like there was a really great opportunity to explore this space. And I started looking into it 
you know, over two years ago now. At the time, there were just a handful of B2B marketplaces in Europe. Barely anyone was working on this space. And it's been fascinating to see how quickly the landscape has evolved. And two years later, there's actually, you know, a couple of these businesses, especially in the US, that are now getting to unicorn status, the likes of Rig Up and Fair, for instance, and just seeing a lot of companies in this space, which has been very exciting. Interesting. And putting Alibaba aside, why do you think B2B marketplaces lagged behind B2C marketplaces over the past two or three decades? So my interpretation is that it's due to a number of factors. So the first one being the complexity of B2B transactions. They tend to be a lot more intricate than business to consumer transactions. And, and this is largely due to the fact that average order values tend to be much higher. And this means that on one hand, the purchasing process is not the one-click process that we see on the likes of Amazon. Sometimes it's negotiation or auction-based. Sometimes you know it involves a lot of back and forth. And on the other hand, trust in these types of transactions, because the average order values are so high, is really, really important. So that's one element. And secondly, because of you have this reliance on trust, you tend to have a lot of established relationships between buyers and suppliers, which are really, really tough to disintermediate. And you don't have that type of dynamic in business to consumer marketplaces. Then thirdly, in B2C, if you're an entrepreneur building something in the space, it's relatively easy to put yourself in the shoes of a consumer. If you're building, you know, let's say a marketplace for shoes, a marketplace for books, you can kind of imagine the customer experience. And with B2B, it's so much harder just because some of these industries are incredibly complex. We have an investment in a company called Metals Hub. It's a marketplace for metals trading. And you really need to have a specific insight and experience in that industry to actually then try and, and disrupt it. So I think those are a couple of factors which have made it more difficult to build B2B marketplaces or have made adoption in that space a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. Initially, you said uh, you talked about the larger average order values. I feel like given the larger average order values and the lower fragmentation of the market compared to B2C marketplaces, uh, B2B marketplaces have lower take rates and tougher unit economics. That's also thanks to the complex workflows that they have to build and the technology required to automate them. How should an investor think about these dynamics while considering such an opportunity? Yeah, I think it very much depends on the market you're targeting, and it's very case by case. There are still a lot of B2B marketplaces that resemble B2C, so all these Amazon-style marketplaces for um, lower average order values. Uh, When it comes to higher average order values, arguably the low take rates are not necessarily a huge issue because they're kind of offset by these high AOVs. But I have to say it is... We find that it's harder to monetize these business transactions and and often the marketplaces we're seeing are not really operating on a traditional commission-based model like a B2C marketplace and they often need to find different ways to monetize. So we see a lot of marketplaces actually charging subscription fees and looking more like SaaS businesses, a lot of other ones that are actually not monetizing the transactions very much, but charging additional services on top. So this could be, you know, selling on additional logistics, or increasingly we see companies integrating fintech into their marketplaces and upselling payments, insurance, financing. So if you think about the business models of B2B marketplaces, they tend to be a lot more complex. And I think also really fascinating to look into, but we do look at it on a on a case by case. Interesting. I was going to ask you about the subscription element there. So I feel like if you want to 
build a B2B marketplace, there are two ways of doing it. One way is to act like a SaaS player while you streamline operations and facilitate transactions for your customers and then open the marketplace component when your network is large enough. Um, and then become, you become a SaaS-enabled marketplace. Another way to become a B2B marketplace is to operate more like a services company that cannot scale, but then put in some tech pieces and automate as you evolve, as you try to become a fully automated marketplace. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is these two different models. On one hand, what we call the, the SaaS-enabled marketplaces, and on the other hand, what we call managed marketplaces. So we definitely see a lot of SaaS-enabled marketplaces in the B2B space. This is due to the, this complexity of transactions, um, which I mentioned before, which makes it harder to capture the transaction as a pure play marketplace. As a result, you have many of these B2B marketplaces which actually build some kind of software SaaS in the form of a workflow tool, for instance, to simplify the typical buyer and seller procurement process. And they hook users in with this tool. They get them to use the tool and then build the marketplace on top. On the flip side, you have companies which are taking this managed marketplace approach, which is where they essentially take on additional parts of the value chain beyond just connecting buyers and sellers. So, for instance, they might take on the vetting process of the supply or have a way of standardizing the pricing or the quality of the supply. They might add on some logistic services. So RigUp, which is quite a successful marketplace in the U.S., they match oil and gas contractors to companies that need their services. They're a good example of this managed marketplace in that they take an active role in terms of making sure that the supply is credible, that they have the right credentials, and then they also help them get paid faster so that they take on a managed role in that respect. So definitely agree with your question that there's the tendency to either build some kind of SaaS component or just take control of more of the value chain as B2B marketplaces evolve. We have this one B2B marketplace company in our portfolio that has a net dollar retention close to 200%, but the growth in number of key accounts or number of customers is very low. Although the overall growth of the business is good and the high customer retention proves that customers love the product, they are not penetrating or grabbing the market fast enough. And what worries me the most is that this might lead to others to enter the market and get customers. What's next for B2B marketplaces? Do you think API companies or decentralized marketplaces or blockchain-powered platforms will emerge to increase technology adoption in different B2B markets? Yeah, good question. I think to your point, what we see in a lot of these B2B marketplaces is, as you mentioned, facilitating existing relationships as opposed to trying to disintermediate them, which is what traditional B2C marketplaces do. And, and the reason that we see that happening quite a lot is because, as I mentioned before, you have this strong need for trust and you have a lot of established pre-existing relationships in the business-to-business context, which doesn't happen so much in B2C. And these are really tough to disrupt. So for many B2B marketplaces to succeed, they actually need to find a way to bring the existing buyer and supplier pair onto the platform and get them to continue transacting on that platform. So one of the ways that they do this, as I mentioned before, is building some kind of SaaS or collaboration tool to make that easier. So a good example of this is FAIR, one of the most successful B2B marketplaces. They're a wholesale marketplace and they made it super easy for 
existing buyers to bring on their suppliers onto the platform and initially didn't charge for the transactions between that buyer-supplier pair, making it an almost a no-brainer to join. And then once this buyer-supplier pair is on the platform, they'll start discovering new supplier demand um, and actually broadening their scope of buyers or suppliers that they tend to interact with. This kind of facilitating of relationships isn't the case for all marketplaces. Um, You have a lot of B2B marketplaces that are a very strong discovery component, and I think that will always be key for for marketplaces in general. But I think in a lot of cases, it's just a great hack if you're able to, rather than restarting these new buyer and supplier relationships, to bring existing buyer and supplier pairs onto the platform. Mm -hmm. So for B2B marketplaces, basically, discoverability and reachability elements, um, the value of discoverability or reachability is not deep compared to B2C marketplaces because they're less fragmented. Exactly. If you look at B2C marketplaces like Amazon, for example, or Etsy, you're going on very often to discover new supply. As a buyer, you're not necessarily ordering from the same person over and over again. And that's why discovery is really fundamental part of B2C marketplaces. Um, on the B2B side of things, since you have these established relationships, often most of the value from, from that, that the platform and the marketplace provides is not necessarily so much about discovery, but it's about the convenience and creating an experience that is so much more convenient than their status quo. So that just the value the platform provides is more around discover is more around convenience and trust as opposed to discovery as it is in consumer marketplaces. And then is it fair to say that the network effect is not that critical for B2B marketplaces and has a lower of a value for the platform overall? Good question. I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think network effects are always a key component of marketplaces and I think just as strong in B2B as opposed to B2C. And B2B marketplaces have very long sales cycles. It takes a while to integrate and are very operational in nature. Because of these, I feel like it's harder for them to expand internationally if they're not focused on cross-border transactions like Alibaba from the get-go. Would you agree with that? Again, I think it depends. We do have a couple of marketplaces in our portfolio that are more similar to the likes of B2C marketplaces and, and have lower transaction values. The ones that have higher transaction values, it almost it tends to be more like a, a SaaS sale. So you have to often do, you have to have a sales team. It's less like performance marketing driven and more, yeah, as you mentioned, longer sales cycles. We actually have quite a few B2B marketplaces that are global from day one. So we are investors in a business called Cargo One, which is a marketplace for air freight, and their supply and their demand from the get-go is international. Similarly, we are investors in a company, which I mentioned before, called Metals Hub, and that's also a, a global marketplace from day one. So it depends where they're starting off from. If they are local marketplaces, because you often have these longer sales cycles, it does mean that it can be potentially harder to scale internationally. But honestly, it hasn't been a really big issue that we've seen within our portfolio companies. And and most of them are actually international on the B2B side of things. You're like a walking library of B2B marketplaces. So which company was the weirdest one that you've looked into? You don't have to tell me the name of the company, but just weird in terms of the business that they operate in. Uh, Oh, I actually have a great one for this. So it's an undisclosed investment. But I, I really love this one because it's just such a weird industry. So it is actually a marketplace for the trading of fish. 
So they essentially connect fish processing companies with like wholesalers, like large supermarkets that buy this fish. And it, it sounds like a, a weird area to build a B2B marketplace in, but it has one of the most fascinating dynamics because the market is so dependent on supply and, and the availability of the supply and prices change so drastically depending on the demand and supply that it almost operates like a stock market where the buyers are logging into the platform several times per day to check you know whether prices have gone up or down and are often purchasing you know two or three times per day and one interesting stat was i think within a month the average number of times ordered by a supplier was something like 31, which means that people are really ordering multiple times a day. And, and I think that's a dynamic that you would, for example, never see in a in a B2C marketplace. Yeah, never. If there's going to be a strong marketplace for the supply of fish, then there should be probably like thousands of marketplaces for every industry in every vertical. Do you think that's going to happen over the next two, three decades? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that this is one of the really exciting things about this job is that I've ended up looking at so many different markets that I never even realized existed. I mean, we looked at a marketplace for the trading of cattle, for instance. We looked at the different marketplaces in the construction industry, so for ordering cement. And if you think about it, it just makes sense that most industries in the world should be digitized. Why is it that as a consumer, we can order pretty much everything online, but as a business user who, you know, uses these online platforms on, on the consumer side of things, why can't they kind of have a similar experience, you know, on the business side of things? So I, I think we'll see many, many different industries being digitized, whether it's, you know, in the food to supply chain, whether it's, you know, in the manufacturing supply chain, whether it's, you know, even in peer procurement of B2B fashion, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what else we come across. Yeah, I, I love these legacy markets with very low uh, technology adoption rates. And I, I mean, technology is going to enter eventually, whether that's over the next 10 years or 20 years, doesn't matter. And these industries are very large. So even if your take rate is low, your obtainable market is still very deep. What are some of the KPIs you track in between marketplaces and some relevant benchmarks. An example, what's a healthy take rate or net dollar retention, et cetera? I think there are a lot of typical marketplace KPIs that we can look at when we look at B2B marketplaces. The main ones being, for example, like you have your GMV, your take rate, your unit economics, so your cost of acquisition and your lifetime value. On the take rate side of things, there's really no clear benchmark because it depends on the average order values. Like if you have a really high average order value, your take rate will probably be relatively lower. We do see, for example, managed marketplaces that take on some of the value chain are usually able to charge higher take rates. So you can get into the like maybe 30% take rate, that sort of margin. But for others, we see much lower take rates. So one of our marketplaces in our portfolio is doing, you know, millions every month in GMV but they have a take rate of about 1%, for instance. So, so there's no real benchmark on that side of things. And another key metrics that we look at are everything around retention. I think that that's arguably one of the most important metrics. So you want to understand how often users are coming back to the platform. 
So is retention, for instance, getting better as you add more SKUs onto your platform? And in particular, you mentioned net revenue retention. So this is the percentage of recurring revenue retained from existing buyers within a given time period, usually 12 months. So it's a good reflection of how much your customers need and and love your product. So the higher the net revenue retention, usually the higher the spend of your specific cohorts. And and with that, we'd say like 100% is a good number. Um, Usually in consumer marketplaces, you see, you know, 100%. The interesting thing with B2B marketplaces is that can actually be much higher than 100%. We've seen marketplaces where it's, you know, 900% because as buyers get used to the platform, they start ordering more and more. So net revenue retention is super high. Another metric which we look at, and I'm actually writing a post on this right now, is a share of wallet or share of earnings. So really trying to understand, for example, with share of earnings, what percentage of a supplier's income is captured by the marketplace as opposed to other revenue streams. And on, on the flip side, so what proportion of a customer's spending can you capture on your marketplace? And that's a good gauge of how important you as a marketplace are for your buyers or sellers. Yeah, we have one B2B marketplace in our portfolio. Although their growth is healthy, they have like a 2.5x year-over-year growth. Their net dollar retention has been great. It's like 170%. But their growth in number of key accounts, much like number of customers, is only like 1.3, 1.4x. So although the net dollar retention is high, which means customers actually like the platform, you have a lot of cross-sell and upsell opportunities. I feel like they're not penetrating the market fast enough which might let others to enter the market and gather those accounts that we're far away from. What's next for B2B marketplaces? Do you think API companies or decentralized marketplaces or blockchain-powered platforms will emerge to increase technology adoption for different B2B verticals? Yeah, so API-first marketplaces are actually an area that we're very interested in, and I've seen quite a few companies in this space recently. So just to give you some kind of context around what these marketplaces are, if you think about a traditional marketplace, so the discovery and the purchasing process is usually done on the, the application layer and are visible by the end consumer. In a API as a marketplace, the API is actually the UX for the transaction. In other words, the transaction occurs on the infrastructure layer and is abstracted away from the end user. The user doesn't know that he's interacting with a marketplace. So to give you a more concrete example, Duffel is a, is a London-based startup, which is an API-based marketplace. So they enable travel agencies to plug in directly into airlines reservation systems via an API so that they can pull real-time flight offers, make bookings, and access live availability through that platform. So they essentially aggregate flight inventory, bundle it into an API, and travel agencies can then resell this inventory on their site. From a consumer standpoint, you never actually know that you're interacting with a marketplace. You just think you're interacting with that travel agency. So I, I think I suspect we'll see a lot more of these types of marketplaces pop up. And I think that's a very exciting category to look into. On, you know, you mentioned um, blockchain and decentralized marketplaces. It's actually an area that I spend a lot of time looking into. I think that there's huge potential on that front. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, decentralized and blockchain powered marketplaces. I, I think this is a category that I spend a lot of time looking at. And I think there's 
huge potential. However, the underlying infrastructure still has its limitations and hasn't developed fast enough to enable a smooth consumer experience. So I think that there's still a lot of work to be done on these underlying blockchain protocols to ensure that B2B decentralized marketplaces can be functional and and usable. And I'm very excited to see that happen. We've seen a couple of decentralized exchanges, for example, which I think have a lot of potential, but I think it's definitely still an early market and I expect we'll see a lot more come out of it. Mm -hmm. It's going to take time, definitely. One last question as a closer. Are you guys going to continue to invest into Eastern Europe and Turkey? Are you planning to hire someone in Eastern Europe or Turkey? I mean, are we going to be able to co-invest with Point9 anytime soon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, we've been global from from day one. Re-Eastern Europe, we've always looked at, at investments over there. We have several investments in Poland, in the Ukraine, for instance. Last year, we did our first investment in Turkey. Pavel, one of the partners at Point9, is actually Polish. So he's definitely well-connected to the Eastern European ecosystem. And I think it's it's just an ecosystem that, quite frankly, has been overlooked by a lot of European VCs. I think there's always a huge focus on Berlin, London, and Paris. But I think you know what there's huge scope to really look beyond that. And I think one of the things that we love about the Eastern European markets is there seems to be really, really great technical talent. And it's actually much more cost effective to build businesses out of there than it would be to build, you know, a business out of London or, you know, let alone San Francisco and New York, for instance. Well, that's great to hear. Julia, thanks for joining the CC podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was a uh, great chatting. I really enjoyed that. Julia is like a walking library on B2B marketplaces. There's a lot to learn from her. And since this is an area I'm interested in, I hope we'll do co-investments soon. I'm thinking of doing more vertically focused episodes with investors and entrepreneurs. Feel free to reach out to suggest guests or topics. Cheers. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.